You can now hear Movie Heaven, Movie Hell on Stitcher. Stitcher is radio on demand. Listen anytime, anywhere. Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows, plus discover from 20,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows. You can also create your own custom playlists. Stitcher is available on iOS, Android, Nook, iPad, and in over 4 million car dashboards. It's on demand and it's on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory. You can stream your favorite podcasts from Stitcher. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the App Store. And please leave us a review and rating on Stitcher. Thank you. Welcome to Movie Heaven, Movie Hell with me, Simon Aiken, and... I'm Keith Isles, and we are both independent filmmakers and lifelong fans of cinema that enjoy talking and discussing other directors' work. Uh, we are, actually, we've had a little break. We've had a few specials uh, episodes that we've put out, but um, we have sort of come full circle, and we are now uh, back to the letter A, Um and for anyone who is new to the show, basically, uh, we, we choose a director from the alphabet and we talk about a film each of theirs that we like and a film each of theirs that we don't like. And um, uh, we are back round to A. There's, there was quite a number of, of A's from the history of cinema, uh, both, you know, classic Hollywood and more contemporary and of course from overseas as well but uh we've we've got round to there are many Andersons out there as well (laughs) (laughs) but for for this one we are going with Paul Thomas Anderson or P.T. Anderson or P.T.A. as he's sometimes known so uh there we are yes well we were rather cheeky with our very first episode talking about Paul W.S. Anderson (laughs) you know not exactly the the director most people would think we'd come out the gate with but uh but now we're uh, we're, we're we're looking at a serious director exactly it was to show it was to show that we weren't being pretentious at all in this show and uh you know we 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 are covering directors of all calibers all ages all types of movies etc so um yes we went you know and as i said with a there's plenty for us to go back and uh choose from on uh, on on future podcasts as we as we get through the alphabet a second time so um but yes paul thomas anderson uh another one of our you know another one of our sort of contemporaries in terms of filmmakers in so much as uh you know he was born in the in the 1970s um and much like us kind of grew up as a a bit of a cinephile a bit of a a fan of of cinema um classic cinema uh contemporary cinema uh and and literature as well it seems yes see he was part of the video generation absolutely and 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 very influenced uh you know by many of those um as we were uh he's only actually done seven feature films 
to date. And I have to admit, this this is this is confession time a little bit from me, actually, because um, whilst I I do salute and understand and have always understood that he is quite an important and interesting filmmaker. Um, I realized doing the research for this and obviously because we had a little break um, in between letters this time, uh, I did have the opportunity for once to actually go back and and kind of watch all of his work. Um, but I'd realized that there are actually quite a few of his films that I hadn't seen um, you know, embarrassingly, you know, I call myself a a, a film fan and, uh, you know, I do. I spend a lot of time watching movies um, and indeed uh, episodic, you know, and serialized television uh, drama and things of that nature. But, uh, yeah, th- th- there were quite a few of his films that I, that I had to go back and um, sort of not just rediscover, but actually watch for the first time uh, doing this, which... Well, it's it's part of the reason we do it, I guess. But um, I was slightly red faced that I was like, my God, haven't I seen that? <laughs> so, so it's been interesting. There was only one film that I hadn't seen up to this point, and that was Hard Eight. And uh, I did get a chance to, to go back and watch it. And um, I have to say, I think his first film was a bit... You could see in, in the film, it kind of had the DNA for... F- for his future films but it wasn't quite there i think one of the things that was kind of missing from that film was the use of steadicam yes it, because you watch that and then you watch boogie nights and boogie nights is a huge leap forward it is it's a it's a massive jump up and one of the reasons for that you know is just the use of the camera in hard eight um the camera does move and there are long shots but it doesn't have the same energy as it does in Boogie Nights and also I felt that there was a lot missing from Hard Eight as well Hard Eight seemed to be a long it felt like it should have been longer and I think as P.T. Anderson's come along you know come along with his filmmaking his films have got a lot longer yes I think in his filmography he only has two films that are about 90 minutes which is Hard Eight and uh, Drunk Punch Love no, I, punch, punch drunk, drunk love. Yeah, no. I, Sorry, I, I, get it mixed it around. That's all right. Um, no, uh, you have enough. You know, have enough punch. You get it mixed around, so it's all good. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I, I I agree. I mean, from my understanding, um, the 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 hard eight copy that I managed to get my hands on for this, uh, sadly, uh, didn't have a commentary track, which is a shame because I listened to his commentary track on Boogie Nights and. Uh, He's actually incredibly interesting to listen to on these on these tracks. But um, he did talk a little bit about what he calls Sydney, which was the original title uh, for, for Hard Eight. And, yeah. um, you know, I got the impression from a lot of the things he was saying is there was an awful lot of producer interference um, with Hard Eight. And he had to make a lot more compromises than than he was willing to make. And indeed, uh, has made with with his films in his career moving forward. So um, you know, you know, he's quite a he's quite a strong-minded character. Um, some could say somewhat arrogant, perhaps. On the most part, I think his stuff really works. I mean, one of the things I am embarrassed to admit is one of the films I hadn't seen, believe it or not, until I did this. Um, you know, there are always classics that 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 you miss, and that's you know, there are. 
there are classics from the golden age that I haven't seen. And there's also modern classics that I haven't seen. And I hadn't seen, believe it or not, Boogie Nights. Oh, wow. OK, wait, 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 wait. Really? Yeah, I know. How 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 could you have missed that <laughs> I, one? Well, I, I was trying to figure figure that out because I was thinking, how the fuck have I missed this film? Basically, and I think I know why. Um, basically, um, in the in the in 1997, that's when I was at film school, and what had happened is we'd had a really bad summer. I mean, we, we've discussed this before. You had like um, Luke Besson uh, had done. Um, uh, what was it called? It's so bad it's gone out of my head. Uh, one with what, Fifth Element. Fifth Element. You had Batman and Robin, which, you know, we always talk about Batman. I have to and... say, Fifth Element's not a bad film. Well, it's, yeah, but in my opinion, it's not as good as some of Batman's <laughs> other films. But anyway. Com- compared to, like, Batman and Robin, it's a masterpiece. Yeah, we had Batman and Robin. You had Speed 2. You had The Lost World, which uh, any listeners go back and listen to the Spielberg one if you want to know about that. Um, you, you know, you had all these films and then this wasn't released until the um, the fall in the US. It, it didn't come out with the summer hits. It came out later in the year. And what happened that year is we began production as, as a film school on a, um, a feature film called The First of May, which starred Julie Harris and a then very young Dan Bird. And that was our sort of, if you like, first full on on location production. And it was the 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 introduction of, you know, 18 hour days, uh, you you know, driving backwards and forwards, uh, working weekends. You you know, it it was the sort of introduction to, hey, this filmmaking lark is a lifestyle, not just a, a gig. Yeah. And that went on for eight weeks. And I think what happened was in amongst that time was when uh, Boogie Nights had been released. And I think what happened is I just didn't see it because that was all happening. I seem to remember a lot of my, um, you you know, really mature uh, (laughs) students that I worked with while we were working on 1st of May. They all had their sort of Dirk Diggler and porn star t-shirts <laughs> that they were wearing on set and whatever <laughs> and 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 the thing is I'm one of those people I do like to see things on the big screen even even though I very much grew up in the home video era that we always talk about and watch loads of stuff on television etc really I always do like to for the first time at least see films on the big screen and it isn't usually until I go back and revisit stuff that it's on blu-ray or dvd or or whatever and I think uh that is my reason in a long-winded way <laughs> as to why I miss boogie nights which uh, of course is an absolute screen masterpiece and um you know not only did I watch the film I watched the half an hour of deleted content as well and commentary on the film and the deleted content so it was really eye-opening and and interesting um but yes i that's that's the first film i saw of pt anderson was actually magnolia okay so um and of course he'd done a couple of shorts he'd done what was it cigarettes and coffee not to be uh confused with the jim jarmusch film <laughs> that's right and he also did uh, a short film about dirt diggler which was kind of the predecessor to um boogie nights i believe that's right, sadly yeah. it's not that's on the blu-ray which is a shame but yeah yeah i well i mean the dvds of um boogie nights have always sort of been criminally you know 
that hasn't got many uh, features on it, which is, is always a shame because it's it's one of those films that you just would love to you know hear more about. Yeah, I mean the one I the one I got I got for a fiver, um, but it's pretty good because as I said, it's got commentary, it's got deleted scenes which, as I said, add up to half an hour's worth with commentary. And then it's got a load of John C. Riley outtakes, which are very amusing uh, to watch because, man, that guy goes for it when the camera's rolling. You know what I'm saying? So, so, um, so that, that, that was very interesting. But uh, as I said, it was, it was surprising. You know, I hadn't seen Hard Eight. I hadn't seen Boogie Nights. And, you know, there were a couple of others as well that that I hadn't seen until this week so um so yeah it's it's been a bit of a a poor thomas anderson education uh for me in many respects but uh <laughs> but but very interesting too i have to say that you you've missed out on some interesting conversations uh, i've certainly had many over uh, over the years and my favorite one uh, about boogie nights was um i was talking to a guy and he reckoned that um that P.T. Anderson had ripped off um, the a scene from Lehane for the end of Boogie Nights. You know when they go and try and rip off the drug dealer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they bring the gun. Mm-hmm. He reckoned that was a it was a rip off of the scene from Lehane where they where the guys visit a, an apartment and because you know they've got like a, a police revolver. That's right. And the guy who's there starts playing with it and starts saying we play Russian roulette and stuff like that, and. Uh, I argue with the guy that the the two scenes had nothing to do with each other. They they had in, in context they had the only thing that sort of played you know that was the same was the fact that it was somebody visiting somebody in an apartment and then they playing with a gun. Yeah, they they weren't setting off firecrackers. But he was convinced, convinced that that was the case, and he would not hear any difference. I'm like. God, you know, sometimes you wonder when you talk to people like that, did you actually see the same film as I did? Exactly, yeah, I mean... Because there was nothing ambiguous about that that scene. No. If anything, it was about tension. It was about a couple of guys trying to rip off this drug dealer, try and make some money, and of course it goes south. Yeah, no, well, not to mention a, a great performance by uh, Alfred Molina, you know, being <laughs> out of his head. And, uh, you know, he had that, that guy who was setting off the uh, firecrackers everywhere while yeah. he's listening to, uh, you know, late 70s music or whatever it was, which was which was uh, a brilliant scene. But uh, Well, yeah, I mean, if, if he was ripping off anybody, I would have thought David Lynch or somebody like that, you know. Yeah. Just having a character just setting off firecrackers, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, the there's no doubt about it. I mean, his... His work, you know, by his own admission, is is very influenced. You know, he, he sort of cites uh, Altman. There you go, another A. Yeah. Uh, Scorsese, uh, Jonathan Demme, and, and Kubrick as as his influences, and uh, you can certainly um, you can certainly see that there is, you, mm. you know, there, there there is definitely some homage going on, if 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 not if not rip off. <laughs> So, uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I like one of the facts on, on uh, IMDb here about the fact that uh, Tom Cruise actually got him onto the set of Eyes Wide Shut and he actually spent some time with Kubrick. So I imagine as a Kubrick fan, he must have loved that because I know I would have loved that. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I totally agree. I mean, of course, you know, um, you, you know, Cruise, Cruise, 
got in touch with him after Boogie Nights to obviously have his sort of, you know, very, very defining role in, in Magnolia. And of course, you know, that way met Philip Seymour Hoffman, who, you know, he then got on, you know, Mission Impossible 3. So it's it's funny how it's all joined up. But, uh, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. Well, yeah, I remember the story. I remember uh, reading about it um, when it was happening. And um, it was a case of that uh, he was, Cruz was so impressed with Boogie Nights that he was prepared to uh, to work with Anderson on Magnolia, but also work for scale. Mm-hmm. Because there was no way that Anderson could get a, a budget big enough to pay his normal fee. <laughs> Yes, but I mean it worked out very well for Cruz because it was it was, you know, it's funny with Cruz when he actually is an actor and he plays a part. He's very good. Yes, but when it's Tom Cruise, the star, you know, when it's a, a Tom Cruise star vehicle, then it's it's not so good. Yeah, but then I I enjoy uh, I enjoyed the Jack Reacher film. I thought that was really good, even though you know, if you read the character in the book. And you see him on uh, on the screen; they're completely different. Yeah, because in the book he's six foot four, built like a shit brick house. You know, he looks like a you know like a marine. If anything, um, do you remember? You've seen Hudson Hawk, haven't you? Yes. You remember the, the you remember you had the CIA agents who were all named after chocolate bars, right? Yeah. You had the guy called Snickers, who was a big guy with a you know with a blonde flat top. Yeah, yeah. That's that how Re- that's how Jack Reacher is described. To some extent, but with more intelligence, though. Yeah. yeah. Oh well, hey, we've we've got another one coming out this uh, this this summer, haven't we? So um... well, yes, yes. Looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah. No, I I absolutely like those films too. But but to to agree with your point entirely, yes, uh, there's no doubt about it. You know, Tom Cruise, he's been acclaimed for for obviously his part in in Magnolia. Um, but you know, even before that, you look at films like Born on the Fourth of July and whatever. It proves that he is indeed a good actor, and um, and and you know, I think is also great when he takes the piss out of himself, like in Tropic Thunder. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, that's no, a whole that was, that was thing. good. <laughs> that was good. Uh, also, um, there, there's a joke about Tom Cruise in the uh, the new TV series Preacher. Oh right! So if you haven't seen it yet, I won't ruin it for you. But it did make me laugh so hard. Oh, that, is, that is on uh, Amazon Prime, isn't it? I believe. It is on Amazon Prime. Yes, yes. I'd yes. like to see it, but yes. uh, someday. Before we get on to our picks, um, as we haven't picked Hard Day, I just want to talk to you about it briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to say I have a problem with the twist. Okay. So just so. A spoiler warning for everybody. <laughs> if you, you know, That's especially if you're new to the podcast, the gone there. Yeah, right there. Oh, no, <laughs> that. turn it off quick. Well, no, no, but I mean, always with our podcast, we go into spoiler territory because, at the end of the day, to talk about these films, you have to get into spoilers. And if it's a if it's a current film, then we try and keep it as low as possible. But you know, it's. It, it, we want to talk about these films and we want you to, you know, to listen to what we have to say. And, and so we have to go into spoiler territory. But the the, the twist about um, the Philip Hall... Philip, ba- Philip right? Baker Hall, yeah. Philip Baker Hall, thank you. Um, his character uh, having something to do with the John C. Reilly's 
character's father. Right, yeah. Okay, I'm not going to spoil it too much, but I didn't buy that. I didn't buy that he just was he was looking after him because the way the film sets it up was that he the guy Philip Seymour oh, sorry John C Riley's got this there's so many triple names <laughs> in, of actors that he's worked with it's crazy <laughs> so John C Riley's character you first see him huddled outside a, a cafe and he's lost all his money how does Philip Baker Hall know that he's there and why it, it just it's just a really weird twist that doesn't make any sense and for me it would have worked better if, if he had no connection with him at all and it was just somebody who he felt pity for and that he tried to help as a human being I mean if you read like the IMDb, they refer to his character as being like a guardian angel mm -hmm. type character. And I think that worked better than, you know, and, and the whole business with um, Samuel Jackson blackmailing him and stuff and him shooting him at the end. And it just, it, it, it just really felt forced. And having seen a lot of P.T. Anderson's work, you, you can tell that he now moves away from twists because I, I, I get the feeling he wasn't happy with the twist in that film either because I just yeah. felt it did not work. Well, some could argue he's moved away from narrative full stop. But <laughs> but yeah, uh, no, I, I know what you mean. It is a little bit of a hard buy. Um, hard eight is a bit of a hard buy. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it is rather coincidental. And I know you're always allowed sort of one coincidence per movie but it does it does seem a bit of a big one in this case and i suppose you know one could argue that he'd been following him or something but then that doesn't really add up either so uh yeah i, I agree with you yeah. you know jo john c Riley and philip baker hall are, are very frequent collaborators of of uh, pt anderson and uh you, you know he gives them both praise when he talks about them as being, you know, in his opinion, two of the finest actors out there, but also, you know, two personal friends of his. Um, so, uh, you know, he, he likes to sort of work with them and get them involved. And what's interesting is I know when we talked about the John Irvin film and in, in, in Hamburger Hill being uh, John C. Riley's first um, first acting role. And that was that was actually what poor Thomas Anderson saw him in and wanted to meet him off the back of that. So, uh, so you, you know, it, it's quite interesting and he's worked with him ever no, since. No, it wasn't, wasn't Hamburger Hill. It was Casualties of War. Oh, was it Casualties of War? I know we talked about yes. this. Yeah, it wasn't. Ha okay, sorry. Casual yeah, of course. Hamburger Hill was Don Cheadle, who he also worked That's with. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. no. I knew there was some sort of connection. <laughs> I knew there was a connection there. But yes, it's this is the thing. This is the thing with the film industry. It's the thing that growing up I used to love about it. But now it's the thing that also drives me crazy about it is the fact that, um, you know, it really is a small world where everything is connected and it's great if you're in it. But if you if you're on the outside, it's like, oh, bloody hell, them again. But uh, but yeah, no, it, it is good that he, he does form these great collaborations and obviously has done so, of course, with Julianne Moore and Philip Seymour Hoffman and Wacker and Phoenix and William H. Macy. And the list goes on. Really, really good stuff. But yes, I, I do take your point. That is a little bit of a hard buy 
in hard eight. And uh, I, I'm not sure. It's funny, actually. Um, I thought, based on my normal tastes and my normal genres, that I would have picked hard eight as my movie heaven. And uh, as I said, I went and watched everything um, just to sort of have a really informed opinion this time on picking it. And uh, yeah, I decided that although I thought Hard Eight was good, it for me it wasn't movie heaven. So yeah. <laughs> so, what was your movie heaven? Well, it it, it, it was hard to pick because, as I said, there they are there are some great films in there. As I said, I thought Boogie Nights was fantastic. Um, Magnolia was the first film that I saw of his, which which you know I also enjoyed. But interestingly, and this was a surprise to me, um, this is another film I hadn't seen until now, but the one I picked for movie heaven was actually Punch Drunk Love, which he did in 2002. Um, again, I'd missed this one. I know it, I know it was selected at the, uh, the Cannes Film Festival that year um, and was one of the winners there. Uh, but honestly, I am not a massive adam sandler fan uh i like some of his stuff for me uh i quite liked his stuff up to about 2000 i think i think the last film of his i enjoyed was 51 uh yeah 51st oh, 51 dates or 51st dates or something like that um, Something like that, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, when you date a, a girl who wakes up every morning and doesn't remember <laughs> uh, <laughs> her life up to a certain point. Yeah, so it sounds sounds like most of the ones I date. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving on. Anyway, no. Um, but yeah, Adam Sandler. I wasn't a uh, a, a massive um, fan. I mean, I, there are some films I liked. I really enjoyed Click, uh, which he was in with Christopher Walken, which I thought was quite a fun fun idea but um yeah with with this one um romantic comedy uh very interesting one of the reasons i think it works is is in a rarity for for poor thomas anderson this is a film that's only 90 minutes long in fact it is actually his shortest film to date and um even shorter than than hard eight slightly and you know what? It moves along. It's engaging. It's interesting. It's visually stunning. And, you know, it, it, it's quite sort of moving, but it's also funny. Um, I mean, it is a romantic comedy, but it's not your typical romantic comedy by any stretch of the imagination. It sort of subverts the, uh, the, 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 the standard romantic comedy. Um, it's it's been described by Paul Thomas Anderson himself as a uh, Adam Sandler art house movie, which um, you know, even though that might be him slapping himself on the back slightly, I can kind of agree with. Yes, you know, um, but it's quite interesting because he wrote he wrote, produced, and directed this film. It's not adapted from any other work. Um, it's got some of his regulars in there. It's got Philip Seymour Hoffman uh you know that man what 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 a loss to the the acting world seriously oh, um God, this yeah. this man regardless of the film never ever does a um a, a duff performance ever it's got uh lewis guzman in it who who was obviously in boogie nights as well um but it also stars emily watson our very own e emily watson as the love interest in this um 
and you know it's got some artwork by uh, by Jeremy Blake and of course the uh, the cinematography of his his frequent collaborator uh, Robert Elswit and you know it really is um an interesting film because you've got kind of even though it's a tight 90 minute film you've got kind of three things going on in this uh, all at the same time which which works in his paste rather well i think You've got it, it, it it's uh, the story revolves around this character called Barry Egan, which is played by um, Adam Sandler. Uh, he's a single guy who has seven sisters and he's actually a very socially awkward, to say the least, um, individual. Uh, definitely has some some issues going on um, in this. And he sells uh, novelty items. And the, the one bit actually did make me laugh out loud where he was doing the he was selling the um, toilet plungers, the, the novelty toilet plungers that, that he was going to supply to hotels. And he was trying to demonstrate it. And he said, we've made them indestructible. And he whacks it and it just explodes everywhere. And I just thought, you know, his his comic timing on that worked beautifully. It really did make me it laugh did. out loud. <laughs> it, it, but I have to say that is the only laugh out loud moment in it. I have to say it's not a film full of laughs. If anything, it's um, I for me it's kind of like a metaphor of falling in love because the the opening, I mean the opening where he's at work and he's on the phone to somebody, and then he goes he goes outside with his coffee and then he sees a car flip over, and then somebody dump a small piano yeah harmonium to be precise but yes a small piano (laughs) yeah he never acknowledges the car flipping over yes that is kind of bizarre i thought that but there's lots of bizarre things in this i mean the fact when you know the bit when he punches the wall with the map on it and you, you see his hand afterwards and it's got love written on his knuckles yeah, yeah. Well, it looks like I think it's just a series of cuts, but it does look like it's spelling out the word love. No, it does. It? Yeah, it does say. Yeah. It, well, but yeah, but the the cuts make the word love. Yeah, and it's you know there's there's a lot of weird things going on. I mean, the fact that all seven of his sisters are played by the same actress. Are they? You suppose? Yeah, according to the because you never really see them that well well you hear you them only really on, on phone you hear them mainly them. and but they all sound the same if you all oh, right because i know one of them is definitely uh what's her name i want to say chloe from 24 because i can't remember the yes. actress's name <laughs> mary lynn something or other but she uh she was always um yeah she was a regular apart from Kiefer sutherland she was the other regular in all of the or most of the seasons of 24 <laughs> having watched magnolia you did you see the the cut scenes Yes, because she appeared in those. She was um, there was all these examples that Tom Cruise's character gives to his uh, class, you know, mm-hmm. and she's the she's the sort of unwilling victim of his uh, sexual advances. <laughs> well, not sexual. She should be so advances, lucky, right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but all her stuff sort of got cut out. Oh, so I think shame. he kind of felt sorry for her and then went well i'll cast you and i give you seven parts yeah <laughs> she's done all right out of it to be fair but yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but um yeah i mean it, it is it is very bizarre there's there's a lot of there's a lot of things that um interestingly you, you know uh, aren't explained at all 
and are referenced mm. but aren't really explained like this. This whole thing, this character recently when this film starts had bought a new suit and, deci- and suddenly decided to wear a suit to work, even though he sort of works in a warehouse. And, um, uh, you know, the, everybody sort of asks him about the suit and he can never really explain it. And he actually does wear this suit for the entire film. Um, so, so, you know, he's got, but, but he's socially awkward. He has these, these terrible, violent, angry outbursts as well um, during this. But as, as well as, you, you've, as I said, you've got kind of three storylines going on because you've got, um, he meets uh, Emily Watson's character um, through his sister. She's, she's a, a friend who, you know, who's quite intrigued by him and finds him attractive and, and, and you know, uh, wants to go on a date with him. Uh, you've got that going on. You've also got... Oh, can I just, sorry, interrupt you. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I, I got that fact wrong. Actually, no, she only plays one of the sisters. Uh, the other six are non-professionals. Right, right. I was going to say, I, I was sure it wasn't yeah. the same actress, but I wasn't going to argue with you because I wasn't sure. <laughs> but I was like, really? Did I miss that? Okay, fair enough. Okay, well, it just says, it just says here, Barry's seven sisters are played by one actress. Oh, does it? And I went, oh, okay. Is and then, and then, and yeah, and then, and then it goes, and six non professionals. Yeah. Good, 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 <laughs> okay. good old IMDb. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you can always rely on them. But um, can I just say about the suit? Yes. Um, because you know, the suit's color is lavender. Yes. And the name of Emily Watson's character is in another language means lilac. Oh, right. Yes. Because so, she's Lena Leonard. Right. Is that Lena Leonard? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so the idea that her name and his suit match up and also the fact that uh, I probably probably didn't notice this. And I went back and I watched it again. But, you know, the scene when he's going for the supermarket and he's looking at all the different products trying to get the um, the coupons. Yeah, I know what you're going to say here. There's the, the, the she's out of focus in the background. Is that right? That's correct. She because so she's puts in a whole other dress. slant on it, doesn't it? That does actually put a whole other slant on it. But she yeah. was she she wanted to meet him, didn't she? She, she actually did. went to that garage just to meet him. She did, yes. No, and she admit and she does admit that later in the film, doesn't she? To him that uh, you know after yeah, some of that, she doesn't admit that she was stalking awkward him. dates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like he's the socially awkward one and weird and violent, but she's a stalker. So yeah, they're 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 perfectly. Um, perfectly matched there you go but you've got so you've got that going on you've also got this uh whole and apparently this is based on a real situation you've got this whole rather rather odd sub subplot where um he's obsessed with buying uh these these puddings from the supermarket because of the air miles coupons um giveaway that they've got and he works out that actually what they're giving away is worth way more than the actual price that you pay out to, to, to buy these puddings, particularly if you get them on offer and you buy like four for one. And he's got this, um, you know, rather OCD, like his character uh, thing going on where he's trying to buy and, and get enough puddings for him to, to claim enough air miles so that he never has to pay for travel again in his life, which, um, which sounds quite bizarre, but apparently that is actually based on a real incident that happened. And the company, uh, I'm sure their marketing manager got fired rather quickly afterwards, but they had to, uh, they, they did have to endorse that. <laughs> or, or maybe not. 
because they did sell a lot of puddings. They sold a lot of puddings, yes, an awful lot of puddings. <laughs> but but, but you, you've got that going on, which is quite amusing and quite quite a quirky little trait of his. But then the other thing that's that's the real crux of this is um, he ends up getting kind of extorted by a uh, a phone sex line where <laughs> um, he. You, you know, it's rather amusing. He, he, you know, he rings rings up this phone line. He's obviously a very lonely guy. You know, very socially awkward. Um, so he he rings up this this line, sex line that he sees advertised in the papers. And of course, he's he's asking all these questions about confidentiality. And uh, he, you know, he's rather embarrassed that he, that he's doing this. But of course, he gives his his card details and and all of those sort of things across the phone. And then. Well, they, yeah, it gives them this, his social security exactly, number. and they and they and they come back after him, um, basically demanding money or that you, you know, in, in putting putting him in that spot. And it turns out that this is actually all being run by out of a um, a mattress factory uh, run by Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, which uh, Dean Trumbull, I think, is his character's name, and. Um, uh, you know, this is both kind of amusing and horrible at the same time because, um, you know, they are rather rather violent in their approach. Um, Hoffman is just, you know, as he likes to play sometimes, is just an absolute madman, maniac on it. But it's kind of he's kind of messed with the wrong guy in 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 Adam Sandler's character because. Um, you know he's he's a rather unhinged individual himself and of course he he ends up finding love and kind of you, you know brings a lot of his 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 barriers and, and awkwardness down and um so essentially you've got these three um different storylines going along but as i said mm. this this all moves it moves very quickly um it's got if you like a which which is kind of a style of um uh, P.T. Anderson in, in so much as you've got a lot of tracking shots and push-ins uh, on this. You've got a lot of use of colour and light in silhouettes, which kind of um, ref- reflects very well into, uh, in, into, into, the, into the film's themes as well. But, um, yeah, for me, this was actually, as I said, it was an unexpected choice for me um, to actually go with this as, as, as movie heaven. But I just think it really works well on all the levels, and it's a really entertaining watch uh it does not feel long or drawn out by any stretch of the imagination because frankly it isn't um and interestingly uh like on the on the dvd cover it's it's uh, got a jonathan ross quote saying it's a a bona fide masterpiece um i know that mark commode has actually um said that it's poor thomas anderson's best film in his opinion which is quite interesting and apparently and this is according to a thing on online um judge apatow has has cited it as one of his favorite films and so is bill nye so um so quite a lot of people you know out there that that, that are in the industry do consider this film um to be pretty good, I, I've discovered since since watching well, it. Well, yeah, because I think it didn't do very well when it came out. I think, if anything, most people didn't overlook it. Or they weren't happy with yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, me being one of them, I guess. 
Uh, you know, I, I kind of didn't bother seeing it because of probably Adam oh, Sandler. Okay. <laughs> I thought you were going to say there for a second that you were the one one of the ones who didn't like it. Oh, no, no, no. no, no I, I hadn't seen it. I hadn't seen it. And uh, I, I didn't know I was going to pick it for movie heaven at all. I mean, I know yeah. I kind of drove you mad in the fact that I kind of oh, sat God. with this one and said, look, I want to go through and watch everything before I decide. And, uh, uh, and, and, and you know, I did. For, in this case, I never went so much with my initial gut feeling i realized that i hadn't seen enough of um pta's work to actually make an informed decision and you know for, for me this even though love boogie nights and love magnolia but i just thought that this, this is probably one that for our listeners isn't spoken about so much and i really enjoyed it so i thought hey you know we like to be a little different sometimes so let's go with punch drunk love is movie heaven and uh, yeah, I would recommend it. I, don't, I kind of don't want to say too much more about the outcome in case people haven't seen it. I actually don't want to spoil it because it is quite a fun ride, you know. And uh, but there is some, you know, the, the use of music, the cinematography, the use of color, you know, the, the art direction in this is all really good. But also the performances. I mean, Emily Watson is, is generally good. Philip Seymour Hoffman was a god. Um, but, you know, I would hands down say that this is one of adam sandler's most interesting performances if not his best one and some people could say that's not up against much competition perhaps but uh you know i really rate him in this i i think i think he, he gets the balance really really well as is this sort of unhinged socially awkward funny but at the same time quite scary character well some people might say that that's actually what he's like in real life yeah Maybe possibly. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, you can't. You could quite believe it. You could quite easily believe that he's like that in real life. But, you know, especially when you you see the, the later Adam Sandler films where it looks like he's just really not trying. Yeah. I mean, uh, I haven't seen Pixels, but I've seen enough of it to know that he just looks really bored. I didn't. I didn't see Pixels either, no, no. <laughs> which is a shame because it was a great short film and a hell of an idea and just ruined yeah you know absolutely ruined but um i i do have a couple of negatives i want to say about this okay film. and i it's one of the things that pt anderson does sometimes which i kind of find annoying and that is having music just playing on top of dialogue mm -hmm. quite loudly and and sometimes it can get quite annoying because it's the same piece of music that's running from into scene to scene to scene. So at the beginning of this film, there's 10 minutes of uninterrupted music, even though he's talking and you see other stuff happening, but it's the same music. And and sometimes it works. Um, I actually found the same thing. I thought the beginning of Hard Eight, where the music was playing on top of the scene where they're in the restaurant and, you know, Philip Baker Hall is talking to John C. Riley, and I'm trying to listen to what they're saying, but you've got this music playing on top of it, and it didn't, it just, it wasn't helping. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, I mean, the use of music in this, it, it in some scenes works really well. I mean, the scenes where, when he's, you know, selling those um, novelty uh, toilet plungers. And he's having to go back and forth with his sisters on the phone. And that music's really driving home the point that he's getting really frustrated. 
because you're getting frustrated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the fact that you just want to see him do this scene, and every time he's getting interrupted all the time by his sisters, and each one of them's just asking, "Is he going to turn up to this dinner tonight?" Yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, how? You know, it only needs one of you to ask him, not all of you to ask him. Yeah. No, it's, it's weird. I mean, the, the use of music is quite odd as well. In the fact that a very odd choice is he uses. He Needs Me, which is from the Popeye movie. <laughs> yes, that's true. That I didn't mind. That was the thing. The songs in this, I didn't mind. I think it was just getting past that first 10 minutes. And it's confusing enough because you're given things that is never commented about, mm-hmm. apart from the, the little piano. You know, it just it, it's kind of bombarding you a bit. And I, I've seen this twice now, and it's still kind of, throws me off a bit the first 10 minutes and i think it's i think it's because the music doesn't ease you in at all it just it's kind of hitting you over the head yeah bit. yeah well i mean I, i'm not sure if that's intentional or not i mean it, 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 oh, is, it is very intentional i was gonna say it, it it is kind of that funny scary and the misfit of love and violence and you you, you, you know uh you, you're just kind of you're very much with that character on this film and um uh you know he is quite bizarre um funny things happen well i mean one of the things that made made me laugh slightly and you can this is where where the film is kind of dated is there's there's a lot of um uh telephone call scenes from from call booths or or landline phones rather than everybody having mobile all the time and uh i like it when you know um this isn't a spoiler but there's there's the bit where they've been out on their first date and they go back to, and he sees her to the door and he's very awkward and he kind of gives her an awkward, uh, hug good night. And then he gets all the way down to the lobby and she's rung the, the person at the lobby to say that she wanted him to, uh, to kiss her good night. And then he goes to go back to her, but like a lot of American apartments, like every floor looks exactly the same <laughs> and he can't actually remember what floor she's on. And he's like running around the whole complex in a real mess, trying to trying to get back to her to get the goodnight kiss. And I thought I thought that all worked um, worked quite well and was quite amusing. Well, I tell you <laughs> what really worked well about that scene was as he was about to leave and the um the, the person says are you are you this character are you Barry Egan um he says yes and you not you're quite nervous he's quite nervous because you don't know who it is you think it's the sex yeah, yeah. workers you know cuz um you know because they he they've been calling him at home been calling him at work you know so you feel the same way as the character it's like oh wow this this could actually be you know this they 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 seem to know where he is all the time but then you're quite relieved it turns out to be emily watson's character yeah yeah no i i agree yeah that works um that works very well i mean i I just think that this film works really well and that that's that's why Mm. i chose it i was like you know what this is one that's never talked about i'm sure um and for for me you know because some of his films are a slog to sit through it's one of my we'll, we'll get on at the end about mm. you know pros and cons and and some yeah. criticisms yeah. about yeah him. when we get to the movie yeah, hills, um, yeah. but, but yeah. You, you know yeah. this this one zips along uh it's really mm. engaging as i said it, it it's amusing on one level uh it's emotional on another it's it's disturbing on many levels as well um 
but it's you know it is beautifully shot and it it just kind of works so yeah and i would say to people first time watching this um you're gonna find the first 10 minutes really difficult to get through but hanging in there because it gets better yeah i think it does i think i I think it works quite nicely oh yeah no i agree with you i mean you know i just think some of the choices are i didn't agree with i mean i also wasn't a big fan of all the lens flare in it right yeah which was really weird because it was a 16 by 9 you know it was just a normal lens it wasn't anamorphic yet they were getting the whole straight line anamorphic lens flare in there yeah so that was all kind of artificially put in there or you know lit in a way that it would shine down the the lens yeah well we'll talk about Later on, we'll talk about him and, and, and film and aspect ratio, because I think there's some quite interesting stuff about this guy w- w- with that as well. So I think that's a good, yeah. um, a good yeah. little uh, tack thing for later. Let's, 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 let's get back to that for sure. But, um, but I, bet, I bet you thought, I bet you didn't think I would choose Punch Drunk Love, right? <laughs> um, no, I didn't. No. Because uh, um, the way it was going, it was going to be hard eight. Yeah, I'm normally more into, as you well know, I like my thrillers and 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 those type of movies. Um, but you know, I'm, I like all movies essentially, and I'm sort of open to it. But no, for for me, for me, I, hard eight didn't quite um, hit all the all the stops, and largely because of the point you made. Um, the end is a little bit unsatisfactory. Um, you could sort of see where he was coming from with some of it, but, uh, yeah, by the time we got to, um, to punch drunk love, I thought that was, uh, that was just more interesting and more visual and just worked better. So there you have it. There you have it listeners. (laughs) Right. Well, moving on, uh, my pick for movie heaven is there will be blood. Yay. Now I saw this in the cinema back in 2007 and uh, I went with an actor friend of mine called Benjamin Green. Uh-huh. And we gone, we had gone to the cinema quite a couple of times that year because before this, we'd just seen No Country for Old Men. Yeah. And then we watched this. And it was kind of interesting because I loved it. I mean, I for, for that two and a half hours or however long it is, I was, I was totally in it. I loved it. I was in that world. And... And Ben didn't like it. And he didn't like the sort of abrupt ending. Yet he absolutely loved No Country for Old Men. While I kind of felt at the time coming out of the cinema cheated by that film. Because mm. I was waiting for the big showdown, which never happens. Right. In, tra- in fact, um, on, the, on that subject, one, one of the things that is quite interesting, we talked about sort of, you know, his influences being Altman, Scorsese, Jonathan Demme, Kubrick, etc. But in some respects, his films also, to me, have this kind of Tarantino meets the Coen brothers feel about them as well. Um, I mean, I, I don't think he, he, he hasn't... Really? In, so, in some weird ways. I mean, not, certainly not this film. Certainly not this film. No. But, but he, he, he's kind of... He doesn't sort of have the the, the visual style of like a, a Burton or a Fincher or something, you, you know, um, you, you know that you always can identify as his films. And he's not as showy with his camera work as say De Palma or something. But but it, but uh, I no I I'm I'm going to disagree with you okay. on that one because the the fact is Boogie Nights, they, it's all about the camera work in that film. I mean, the fact is the opening, the opening shot is like 
you know, a Scorsese shot. It's a one that lasts, I think, about eight minutes or yeah. so. And then it starts on the, 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 the title and then it, it and then it flips over the show. It's actually a neon sign and then it goes down and then through and you meet all the characters in this one yeah. in a nightclub. And it finally ends with um, with Mark Wahlberg's character, Dirk Diggler, you know, working in the kitchen. Yeah, oh, it's a great show. So I'm going to say... That's very Scorsese, he, he, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, he's... It, for me, it, his camera style fits the story. Yeah. So, like, for a, a showy film like Boogie Nights, very much so. But when it comes to a film, a, a classically shot film like There Will Be Blood, then the camera becomes a lot more slow and the movements fit. And there's a lot of long shots yeah. in this. You know, there's a lot of wonners. But I think he, in some ways, his style fits what the story is. Yeah. I mean, what what's interesting, and he does he does reference this in in the commentary of Boogie Nights, which I was massively impressed. I was like, wow, this guy really is a you, you know a um, uh, a student of of cinema big time. It is a lot of the stuff in Boogie Nights was actually inspired by a, a Soviet Cuban film called I Am Cuba. And this right. was one of the films that when I was at film school, we were lucky enough to have the uh, the director and the producer come along and, and actually show us this film. And I know it's one that, that Scorsese, um, you know, he, he worked on getting restored and, and getting back out there and, and sort of seen by a wider audience um, because, you, you know, that film was made back in the 60s, the early 60s. And that has some absolutely amazing photography and, and tracking shots and they actually do the one in that where they where they go under you, you know they go round round um round part of the city and then eventually it goes the camera actually goes underwater and um of course pt anderson was saying and admitting that he kind of ripped that off with with his bit at the pool party where uh mm. they go around the pool and then they eventually dive into the pool but then he said he tried to one-up it slightly by them coming out to hear um uh john c Riley, you know do his speech bit before flipping off the diving board and stuff so um so, so you know there's there's no doubt about it much like you know tarantino is a bit of a cinema geek and 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 whatever that that definitely um uh you know pt anderson is 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 sort of well versed in everything as well which i think is 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 Evident. Let me ask you this question. Do you know of any film director that we hold in high esteem that doesn't, you know, who, who lives in a bubble and doesn't copy other people oh, no. or, or, or is influenced by uh, other people? May, may, probably the only one would be David Lynch, I would guess, because he's... But even then, David Lynch is influenced by other... It may not be other filmmakers, but he is influenced by other artists. Yeah, no, I'm, absolutely. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, I, think, I think, unfortunately... Whether filmmakers intend to or not, it, it, it's it's hard, you know, not not to be inspired. And like you said, it doesn't necessarily have to be by other films, but it, it, it absolutely from other visual art forms, um, most definitely. And, and I mean, I, I know obviously you're a, as we've talked about on our um, podcast before. You know, I know you're a you're a massive Kubrick fan, and rightly so. Um, mm. you, you know, do you feel that one of the reasons you perhaps like there will be blood is is i guess out of all of his films this is probably the most kubrickian would you say no, no? okay no i would not say this. um 
I would say it was more like John Ford. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would say it was. It, it's it's more like a western, mm. a dark western, but it's more like a western. Now, I actually read the book. Oh, you did oil. Okay. Yes, I went and and I got a copy, and it is nothing like the film at oh, all. Oh, really? Okay. The only thing that is is, is the same in the book is. Um, Daniel Plainview's speech, you know, the first time you hear him speak going, I'm an oil man. Mm -hmm. This is my son. Right. H.W. <laughs> that's the only bit. That That's the only bit of dialogue. So you, you have, uh, it actually expands on what happens at that location where the oil's been struck and you see it running down the hillside. Um, the, what, what it is in the book, it says that... Um, that yeah, that, that the oil's been found there and it's it's running, and then you've got all these sort of other oil companies and you know people trying to take advantage of it. And of course, he comes along as as like a he's an independent oil man. He can get things done. He can get, and of course, nobody really believes him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, apart from. The, the you know when he goes to the family house so you have the one where he's in the meeting and everybody's yeah but in the book he's a completely different character he's a he is actually a very moral character mm. and the book even though it does go to california and it does go to that small town and they you know they start drilling oil and they do an, an oil line there it's not about that it's about hw growing up to be a young man and trying to find his place in the world because it, it's also to do about the rise of communism in and socialism in America. Right. Because as the son of a rich person, he feels that he should be more social than it's nothing to do about uh, oil versus religion. You don't have this, um, this battle between plain view and uh, Eli, you know, and the, the scene at the end, the whole point of there will be blood doesn't happen, never happens. Right. Yes, he uh, the, the, son, the son has a relationship with the sister, with uh, Mary. But it's a but it's just, again, it just has different connotations. He just he took the idea and he took the characters and he took it somewhere completely different. And I have to say, I prefer the film much more than Oil. Okay. I think I think he he did he actually did the best thing possible, adapting this book as just using it as not even as a template, just sort of taking bits of it and then making it his own. Right. Because I mean that I mean the thing is, you follow this character from the beginning to his end, because certainly after what happens at the end, you know. He, 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 you know, he's not going to talk his way out of this one. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. I mean, I have to confess, I haven't read, uh, you know, Sinclair's novel, but um, but what one of the things that struck me with the film, uh, rewatching it, was the fact that, um, you know, you say about that speech. I mean, there is apart from grunts of pain, etc. There is actually not a word spoken for the first sixteen minutes of this film which uh which yeah. i which i find amazing because you you right from the get go um 
you are engaged by this. And, and, and I was sort of asking myself the question while I was watching it was, mm-hmm. you know, this is, this is a very good film. Obviously, it's a critically acclaimed film. Um, but I was, I was thinking, is, that, is it because of, you know, poor Thomas Anderson or is it because of just the wonderfully engaging performance of Daniel Day-Lewis? And if it was another actor in that role, would it have the same impact because i mean there's there's no doubt about it the guy as he does with all his roles we know we know this but i mean he completely he completely owns that role um you you know and he is pretty much on screen for most of it isn't he and and you know uh yeah i mean i I was just blown away and i'm surprised um ben as an actor I, i would have thought that maybe you know he would have enjoyed this movie just from that point of view alone, that, that, that uh, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis, you just can't take your eyes off him in this film. I mean, that's, that's, that for me is what made the time pass with this film, was how engaging he was the, the entire time. Uh, what do you think? I, you have to ask Ben that yeah. one, because I don't know. Um, it might be a case he's not a fan of Daniel Day-Lewis. Right. The, for for all the people who think he's a genius, other people don't like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So you know, you know, what it's like in this. But to answer your question, it's both of them, right? Because at the end of the day, um, as great as Daniel Day Lewis's performance is, if that was shot the wrong way, it wouldn't have been a good yeah, film. Yeah. Again, Robert Elswit as cinematographer on this, and and the the, the vistas, etc. On the, I mean, it does absolutely make use of 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 the you know, the full cinemascope, um, you know, look and, and yeah. Of, and of course the amount of research that went into this, I mean, um, unfortunately, which, which is a shame because I think, I think, um, as I've already mentioned, poor Thomas Anderson to listen to his commentaries and whatever are very engaging, but he doesn't seem to do them on films anymore. What he does seem to include in any extras are, um, photographs and research material and documentaries and things that kind of inspired him which are always you you know fascinating to look at and see but you know I'd like to hear from him as well about this and 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 I know on this he did a massive amount of research about that period and about the whole oil business and you know life um you, you know in the late 1800s early 1900s which is the sort of 30 year span that this this takes place in um and and yeah you know some some of the some of the photographs some of those early photographs from you know the earliest days of photography you know you look at and you can literally see you know the shot in the film looks almost identical it's it's quite impressive you know well i think because you know, he's always working on the next project and, you know, he he writes, he produces and he directs them. So I'm sure his time is kind of limited mm. in that sense. And also the fact that, I don't know, I mean, it, it, it's great sometimes to sort of, you know, hear a commentary and, and, and see how they've done it. But sometimes, you know, it's maybe they don't want to re- reveal the secrets. Maybe they felt that they've said enough and they don't want to say any more. Well, yeah, like, like Spielberg and, and a yeah. few others that, that, uh, that, that have that sort of, yeah, thing about filmmaking. So, you know, they don't want to ruin yeah. it for people. No, I get it. From that sense. You know? Yeah. 
yeah no it's good i think this i think you get to a point where it's kind of like you know you have to keep some of this secret because you know that it's part of the the magic of film you know I mean, that is the thing about this film. It's transporting back to this time. I mean, the, there's nothing in it that makes you for a second think, oh, that's wrong. You know, as I'd say with all his work, there, there's always, you, you always transport it to that time, that period, mm-hmm. and everything feels accurate, if it's accurate or not. And, you know, there's I know uh, Ridley Scott's always been accused of mixing and matching up uh, different styles in his... Um, historical epics like say gladiator <laughs> saying well you know that armor wasn't used at that time period that was from a later time period but end of the day it looked good and it felt right well yeah ridley's all about how it looks <laughs> yeah <laughs> absolutely <laughs> but you know but i want to say about the, the the thing about that opening i mean everybody goes on about the fact that there's like no dialogue it's all told through visuals but the thing is it sets up that character really well it shows you that this is a character who's willing to succeed at any price i mean the fact that he breaks his leg and he drags himself from that hole and drags himself for miles just to get that silver you know to get the money for the silver Mm -hmm. so he can start digging for oil and that he can but it also shows you that he's also a person who it doesn't he's not connected to humans so uh, hw is an orphan his father was killed in an accident at uh at one of the um his first oil rigs and uh of course and daniel plan Plainview takes him on because he sees him as an opportunity to get people on board to get to make business to make more money I mean, he does care for the boy, but at the end of the day, also he's using the boy. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you you have you have those things going on, and it you it's all encapsulated in that that opening opening bit. So then, when he starts talking, you kind of know that a he's true to his word, but b he is not he he's not a compassionate man. Oh no, he's a very morally ambiguous character. That is for sure. Yes. <laughs> Which is probably why uh, Daniel Day Lewis wanted to play him. <laughs> you know, but uh, it, it, it is an interesting film. And again, this is a long film, um, but I think that you, you know because of because of everything going on, it doesn't necessarily. It, it's not. It's not such a hard watch as some of Anderson's other long films. well yeah well we'll 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 get to yeah. that we'll get to that but let's 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 talk about this one because we're gonna have plenty of time to bitch about nah. films. Well. <laughs> it's coming up wait for it hold it in just we'll get there we'll get there you know me i never bitch about anything i just kind of <laughs> say that it's good but not great you know <laughs> i'm such a pushover there's a first there's a first time for everything keith first time but um yeah, I mean, it's, I, I, now, if you remember in our Robert Zemeckis uh, episode, I complained about how Robert Zemeckis used religion in a kind of bad way. I wasn't happy with the way he was pushing Christianity in his film, and there was no uh, payoff or any rhyme or reason, really, for it to be there. Uh, in this film, uh, I love 
the clash between Plainview and Elon mm-hmm. and his, you know, his business and religion. And I just love the one-upmanship that goes on. And also the fact that, so from the, from the off, Eli rubs Plainview up the wrong way. Mm-hmm. When he's trying, he thinks he's going to get the Sunday ranch, which Eli and his family live in for, uh, was it pheasant prices? Uh, quail, quail, yeah, they're, they're, they're hunting quail, yeah, yeah. Well, he, he says to his son, oh, we, won't give them, we won't give them oil prices, <laughs> we'll give them quail prices. Because when it comes to the showdown, they won't be there. Sorry, I do, I do love his voice. Um, <laughs> it's one of the impressions I can actually do. <laughs> Wait till we get to the end. <laughs> Fair enough. The stage will be yours. That's fine. Oh, yeah, thank yeah. you. <laughs> uh, but Eli's a bit more clued up and uh, he tries to get the price up and he also tries to get money for the church. And of course, you can see straight away, Plainview is he's not happy with this. He thought it was going to be a walkover and it's not. And then he, when they're getting ready to open the first derelict, Eli comes to him and he says that he wants to bless the derelict. And uh, Plainview agrees to it, but then on the day, he actually gets Mary and he puts her up centre stage and even uses the, the line that Eli said that he should say about him. You know, the proud daughter of a proud family... Mm-hmm. of these lands and then of course that's when all the problems start happening on the derelict you get a worker who dies and then you get uh plain son gets deafened mm. by a gas explosion that's a horrible scene and it's played so well because you you hear what he hears yeah so again they've t- taken not only the use of the visuals but the use of, of the sound as that's as well yeah. For the storytelling and uh yeah it, it, it that that bit uh that bit yeah was quite shocking you know when you first see it it's like oh my god crap you know it, it, it you jump out your seat or, or at least i did when i saw it <laughs> and of course then they have to destroy the derelict because the because the oil keeps it, the, the oil's on fire and they have to they have to use explosives to to turn to to stop it because they're on an ocean of oil. I mean, Plainview's very happy about this. I mean, he seems to be more excited by the fact that there's so much oil. Then there's the fact that his son's been injured in in this horrible accident. Oh, completely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then of course Eli turns up and says, "Well, you know, you owe us money. You promised promised us this money for the church." And don't you think all these accidents that have been happening is God's work? Yeah. And of course, Plainview beats him, kicks him into a into a pool of oil. And it's just that back and forth. And it, of course, it, it goes Eli's way later on when Plainview has to be um, baptised in the church because of... Um, of, of of the the old man who owns the bandy track, Mr. Bandy. Yeah. <laughs> and he wants him to be part of the church. A very uncomfortable scene. <laughs> oh, cause, cause Eli is, he's, you know, he's, he's 
getting his own back on Plainview. And of course, when he leaves, he has that smug look on his face when he, he thinks he's beaten Plainview. And of course, when we get to the end, when he turns up at the house and he's that he's he has wasted his money away on girls and drink and God knows what else. And he's trying to sell the bandy track to Blameview. And that's where we get that wonderful scene about, I drink your milkshake. I drink it all the way up. <laughs> you know, talking about the fact that they had got the oil off there through drainage, through, you know, drilling underneath all the other land to get at that oil. And that it's worthless. He got what he wanted from it. And of course... You know, he actually gets Eli to, you know, profess that he's a false prophet. <laughs> Get him on his oh, knees. Oh, he gets his own back big time. Oh, he hey, does, at yeah. least he doesn't say, my milkshake's better than yours. <laughs> <laughs> or, my milkshake brings all the boys to the yard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, something tells me that poor Dano probably got a few bruises while making this film. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, uh, he certainly looks like he's running through his life at the yeah, end. Yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, no, it's it, it's it's a great film. I mean, there's so much that's going on. I mean, the the whole bit with uh, his brother turns up, and you know straight away enough something's not right. And of course, you know it turns out that he he isn't really his brother. His brother died of uh, TB. Mm-hmm. And he just, because he talks so much about him, he could take on his mantle and try and sort of, you know, get money out of him. And of course... Big mistake. Big mistake doesn't end up very well for him because Daniel Plainview is somebody who he he doesn't like. Well, he, he says he doesn't like people. It was used in a used in the, the, the trailer. He, he says, I have a competition in me. I just don't like all these people. And uh, and he doesn't, and you you see that with uh, Union Oil when they try and buy him out, and uh, when the the guy he it starts off very pleasant where he talks about asks about his son, and Plainview is very um, he's well, you know he keeps off he's like I don't want to talk about that, and of course then when they they get into what they want he then gets really angry about the fact that he's trying, you know, that he feels that this guy is trying to tell him how to bring up his own son. And he goes, one of these nights, I'm going to find you and I'm going to cut your throat. And the guy's like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's like, what? And, you know, he has, you know, he just wants to, he just wants to make it to the top. He wants to be, and it it really is kind of like when you see him in the end in that house by himself with nothing to do, he does feel like, it, you know, somebody who's wasted his life. That even though he got all this money and power, it just led to nothing. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's 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 uh, it works. I mean, interestingly, again, this is this is IMDb, so it could be wrong. Um, but uh, apparently Daniel Day-Lewis accepted the role as he had been a fan of poor Thomas Anderson's previous film, Punch Drunk Love. 
There you go. There you go. <laughs> so another you fan go. <laughs> to go with Jonathan Ross and Mark Commode. <laughs> um, yeah, it, this film. Um, yeah, it, it, it's it's definitely I would say um, out of his canon of work. This this is definitely you, you know one of the stronger films, and 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 obviously mm. has been acclaimed uh, to that as well. He also dedicated this. I noticed at the end, he did dedicate it to Robert Altman, didn't he? In the, uh, in the end yeah. credits. Um, well, do you want to hear a fun fact? Fun fact. I love fun facts. You know, I do. So when Robert Altman was making a Prairie home companion, PT Anderson was, uh, listed as a backup director in case anything happened. Wow. In case he, uh, because he was in his 80s when he made a prairie home companion mm -hmm. so they needed a i guess uh, a backup just in case anything happened to him during filming yeah yeah you know he, he's 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 been quite lucky in the fact that it sounds like quite early on uh you know as as a sort of film student he uh, he got to meet and and work with a lot of his um sort of idols growing up he was just kind of in that right place you know well he was another director who came out of sundance yes oh that's right yes. but i mean come out of sundance their training like tarantino which i don't know if they still do but doesn't seem to be anybody coming out of that camp yeah if anything people go to sundance festival to be discovered they don't actually i, I don't know if they still do the training i'm sure they do they must do but there's nobody of of that caliber that's come out of it since. So we we haven't had a, another Quentin Tarantino. We've never we've not had another Paul Thomas Anderson come out of there. I know with Tarantino that one of his tutors was Terry Gilliam. Right. Yes. Yeah. By the way, that that was who I meant to when I was talking about visual style of Burton. I was I was meant to say it and Gilliam. That's who I was talking about. I think I said Fincher or something. So that was that was my mind jumping around like it does. But yeah, but I mean, you you know when you're watching a Fincher <laughs> yes, film, yeah. so that that's yeah. fair enough. But you definitely when you're watching know when a you're Gilliam, watching a film, Gilliam film, big time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. No, I, I know. Um, I know these. You know, these guys have been very. Uh, very very lucky but but also you know have a lot of talent as well so i i certainly don't begrudge them that luck <laughs> <laughs> anyway we're going to move on to our picks of uh for movie hell uh just after these messages so you're making a film horror film meta horror film a horror film about horror film Horror film about cinema. And why would you do that? Life is so beautiful. You just have something in your eye. I thought you said you wanted to do something different. Why do the same thing that everyone else is doing? It drives me mad. They all have opinion on everything. Nobody listens to me. Nobody tries to understand anything. Just too much. I found out recently that I had a, a syndrome when I was younger. When I try to go to sleep, the whole world will change. Like everything will go too quick, too slow, or too big, too small. I could control it. Benny Loves Killing. Available now on Vimeo and Indie Flicks. 
And if they don't go for it, you'll kill them all. What's the matter, Jane? placed under constant watch. Well, that much I know, but who done it? You don't even try and stop me. You know I'm going to harm you, yet you do nothing. What about that wonderful husband of yours? Oh, Martin. I love him. Well, someone has to die. Available now on Amazon.com On DVD and Video On Demand Kane, the Stone Cold Assassin Three men, Corbin Taylor, Zeke Jones and Jesse Williams were held for questioning by Marshall Gazer His revenge will be swift Ain't you the law around here, Sheriff? Nowhere to run no place to hide. Jesse, Beverly me, Kane? The new violent and bloody horror short from director Mike Tank. Red Wolf Pines. Is that what you told Luke? He died like the dog he was. Starring Keith Hines as Kane. That bastard ain't gonna find us out here. Available on YouTube and official website, www.apocalypticconservatory.com. Red Wolf Pines. Rated R for Rowdy. Welcome back. Now it's time to venture down to hell and find out what our picks are. So, Keith. What's your pick for movie hell? Right, well, mine's probably going to be quite controversial. Um, obviously, he doesn't have a, a massive amount of films, as we've said, only seven films to pick from. And, you know, they're all pretty strong films across the board, really. Uh, so I've gone with sort of my initial gut reaction to first watching something. And that was... Um, the Master, which he made in 2012. Now... In this case, I was actually very fortunate that um, I was at a, uh, a special BAFTA screening of this, but but with quite a small audience. It was one of the ones held at one of the um, the hotels uh, in London instead. And, okay. uh, you know, uh, he did a Q&A afterwards, and I actually, uh, only very briefly, but I got, I got to meet him and shake his hand. But... I was kind of, I'll be honest, I was kind of, ah, poor Thomas Anderson, whatever, because at the same screening who came to support him and see the film was Quentin Tarantino. So I got to 
shake Quentin's hand and say hi as well, which I was obviously <laughs> way more blown away by. But um, but of course, of course, this is quite interesting because it all leads into. I know we talked, you know, from the premiere of um, Hateful Eight uh, at the end of last year, which of course was a seventy yeah. mil uh, release. But that whole thing, that whole thing that had been set up with uh, the Weinstein's actually started with poor Thomas Anderson on The Master, because The Master was the first film in, um, I, I, think, I think Ron Howard's Far and Away was, was, was the previous film, so it was some 20 years or whatever, to mm. um, uh, actually have been shot on the 65 millimeter format. Uh, which you normally have for a 70 millimeter release. But the thing, right. the thing that P.T. Anderson did uh, with this film, which I always thought it really, it really sort of bugged me when I saw it. I was like, what was, you, you know, you shoot on Super 65, so you expect, you, you know, a 235 to one aspect ratio, which a lot of his films are. But this one he actually released in 185. And I, I must yeah. admit it was a question that came out at the Q&A was, was, was about that choice. Because obviously what he was doing was he was, he was getting rid of, you, you know, a, a third of the picture or whatever for the release. But he said the, the reason for that aesthetic choice, and I mean, he's, he's again, quite lucky that he's powerful enough to sort of <laughs> be able to do these sort of things, was he wanted the, the, the look of the film to match the medium format cameras from from the um, from the late forties. So, what that meant is he wanted the, if you like, the the the, the texture and the richness of of, of seventy mil, but with the aspect ratio of one eight five. So it so it looked kind of more like a medium format picture. But I mean, I, I think that's quite astounding that he was able to do that. But Tarantino admits that that was what opened up the doors to allow him to make you know again with with Harvey Weinstein um hateful eight in in you know shot in 65 mil and and you know released 70 mil so it was it was you know it was kind of the the genesis of that which was quite interesting and I think that's weird because I remember him coming to the the screening of it and coming to the Q&A to to chat to P.T. Anderson about it and and they were they were like sort of 10 feet away from me having this chat about formats and stuff and I was like wow there's something you don't see every day you know <laughs> so that was good but regardless of that this film um whereas I can appreciate that it is a I think it is a great work of art the film uh with some you know again wonderful performances in particularly with Philip Seymour Hoffman um you know, Wackwin Phoenix. Uh, I like Wackwin Phoenix. I definitely liked his performance in films like Walk the Line, which I thought was amazing. But in this one, um, yeah, my, my my initial reaction to this whole film was kind of uh, really, it, you know, I, I found it, I found it long. I found it, you know, quite quite boring, quite hard to sit through. And I and I found and I know a lot of people disagree with me on this, but I found um, uh, Wackwin Phoenix's performance on this a little. It, it just seemed a little too much. It, I, I don't know kind of what he was doing. Um, I get the I do kind of get the themes of it. I mean, I know, you, you know, I know that um, 
P.T. Anderson drew, drew a lot of inspiration from some of the uh, John Huston documentaries on, you know, uh, World War Two and, and soldiers coming back and having to sort of deal with the trauma um, fr fr from the war. Um, and obviously, you, you know, his character's very sort of lost after the war, aimless, um, you know, dealing with with alcoholism um, and, and just trying to deal with this this war trauma when he meets uh, the Lancaster Dodd character played by um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, so wonderfully, um, who is, is kind of there trying to sort of use, uh, has this sort of system for fixing pain and, and dealing with managing traumas, both past and present. And of course, you know, this has been likened to, to L. Ron Hubbard and the whole, you know, Scientology uh, thing, um, which is quite interesting is obviously, uh, you know, P.T. Anderson is good mates with, with, with Tom Cruise. So um, who knows? Well, yeah, he showed it to Tom Cruise just to make sure it wasn't, you know, Think people would think it was Scientology. I mean, it clearly is. Yeah, yeah. But it, that's why it's never mentioned. That's why the 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 name of the religion's really not mentioned. And if it is, it's it's nothing even closely sounding like Scientology. But it is Scientology. I mean, it's you know, it is about an author who came up with this. You know, because it is about him creating this thing as he goes along. I mean, in this one, it's about past lives where, but they, they do mention stuff like, you know, with uh, Lancaster's dog, uh, Dodd's wife, Peggy, played by Amy Adams, mm -hmm. when at the end, she says to um, Freddie Quill that, uh, you know, you're not in this for a thousand years, because the whole, if you've ever seen anything about Scientology, not only do they sign up for their lifetime, but they sign up for a, a thousand years of servitude. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the stuff of science fiction, oh, really. And it comes from a... It comes from... Sci-fi writer, yeah. <laughs> Look, I, when I was working at the London Book Fair, they actually... the Scientology actually had a stand there where they were trying to find distributors for the L. Ron Hubbard books. And these are all these pulp books. And they, lovely people, absolutely lovely, always wanted to get, for us to come round and have champagne after the event, yeah. which, of course, everybody would decline. Um, and they would give us these books, and it's absolute garbage. Right. The the worst kind of writing ever. Uh, but they, they all kinds of stuff you had, like sea adventures, war stories, crime stories, sci-fi... You know, all these kind of pulpy Battlefield books. Battlefielder. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that was before he got onto. Yeah, yeah. This is all. This is all pre-stuff. Right, yeah. right. You know, Battlefield Earth is kind of based on it Scientology yeah, yeah. faith. Yeah. yeah, you know. Um, what a what a movie. Yeah. Oh no. But, uh... <laughs> it's funny to think that people have compared uh, Warcraft to it. They're saying See, that Warcraft that. is this. I've not seen it either, and I think that's kind of really a harsh thing to say because uh, I, I, yeah, <laughs> I don't think there's anything that's quite as close as uh, as that. No, no, uh, but um, but I mean, I, I, I want to say I I I I I love this film. Okay. I think this film's okay. great, and I I you know, 
like anybody who who loves loves a film and gets caught up in it and everything i i can't see why you don't like it but well i mean explain. yeah i mean I, I as i said i'm going on my first watch um i i've watched it again since and of course you know i still find it quite hard i don't know why um there's a lot of things i think are good think is good in it like for example um when you were talking about that whole you know thousand year thing i i love the um the 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 scene uh where you know i just i just love the sort of irrationalist performance if you like from from philip seymour hoffman and the scene where he's talking about uh you you know the 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 fact that it's trillions of years and and you know that 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 bloke sort of that doctor bloke kind of disagrees with him and sort of says well you know how you you know how can you talk about trillions there's no proof of that and you, you know sort of sort of dismisses all of his argument and um uh you know philip seymour hoffman continues to sort of argue with him but it's just the way he then suddenly cut, bursts out and calls him a pig fuck <laughs> and, and i was just like wow okay you know where did that come from and that was just so um well uh, that comes from from religion when you i don't know if you've experienced this yourself but when you're talking to somebody who believes in something with their whole heart and you're kitting them with oh, reason, yeah, yeah. and you're questioning everything. There comes a point where it's like they're gonna, you know, they're gonna do that because they know there is no no other answers they can give. Where you can't say, well, what about this? What about that? And it does come to a point where it's like, well, fuck yeah. you. Well, we know how much you love religion, Simon, in these podcasts. <laughs> but, um, but, but but you know, I mean, again, you sort of say we we talked about some sort of if you like Kubrickian parallels as well and i mean obviously you've kind of got the whole thing in this about the duality of man and you know intellect versus animal instincts and 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 all of that so it's one of those films i can see the good in it i think the performances are good um uh i i do think as i said whackwin i'm kind of on the fence a little bit with him on this um but you know amy adams philip seymour hoffman uh you know laura dern etc etc really good i also think the casting putting uh jesse plemons as as philip seymour hoffman's younger brother is actually uh, uh, sorry as his son i'm afraid sorry is his son mm. is an absolute yeah. stroke of genius because they look so <laughs> alike that it's uncanny yes. so i was like yeah that that's good but I, I don't know i i just i just kind of and i was like am i just not getting this or what but there's you know, I know it's very acclaimed, and I, and I do see, I, I do think there is some some really, um, you, you know, good filmmaking there, and some great performances. And uh, obviously, we didn't mention this on the "There Will Be Blood," but of course, um, music by Johnny Greenwood of, of Radiohead, um, who, yeah. who uh, yeah. P.T. Anderson likes to use for some of his scores. You know, that that's all really good. And, you know, the visuals. Um, but I just felt there was just something about it that for me didn't. I, I felt the end was a bit lackluster and I just thought the narrative was a bit. I, I don't know. It just didn't quite work for me. I found it hard work. This is how I see the film. Yeah. Freddie Quill is somebody who he went off to war and he he left the girl behind. And obviously she was too young and he, he he got lost in the world. I mean, and at the end of the day, you know, it's about him, all the mistakes he makes, including 
you know, boarding that boat and meeting the master and being involved with this cult because he thought it was a way to ease his pain and it wasn't. And he goes back and he faces it and, you know, he, he comes out of it and he's found some form of peace when he's with that girl at the end, well, that woman at Mm -hmm. the end, he has found some form of peace that he didn't have. That's this cult couldn't give him. Because he was still an angry individual and he's still somebody who was running away from his problem either through drink or through violence and making a lot of mistakes. And that is that is what that story is about. Mm-hmm. And I, the stuff with the, the cult itself, I find very intriguing. I mean, the whole bit when he's made to walk back oh, and forth. Oh, God, yeah, with the glass and the, and the wood. In the war. Yeah, what do you feel? And he's just made to do it and do it and do it. And I mean, and you can see that it affects him. Mm-hmm. But he's still, when he's on his own, he still does it. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I especially on watching it a second time, I, I think, I think it's an interesting film. Um, it's, it's certainly not uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's worst film. Um, what we'll get to that, I guess. But, um, <laughs> but you know, I, I had to, I had to pick one. Uh, you know, I think this is an interesting film to talk about. Um, but, you know, when I saw it, and as I said, I did see it in kind of the best environment. I mean, OK, I didn't see it. Actually, admittedly, I didn't see it projected 70 mil. Um, that was shown in very select places. But I yes. was lucky enough to see it, uh, you know, as I said, with a and a with him. Um you know, and as and as I stated at the beginning, there there'd been quite a few of his films, obviously some of his earlier films that I'd missed entirely. Um, but I did I did come out of it sort of feeling like, uh, what's the big deal about this? Am I am I missing something? And of course, you know, there were BAFTA members there that that thought it was amazing and wonderful. And I've got I've got friends, I've got you know um, filmmaker friends who I. Uh, you, you know, value their opinions a lot that think this is absolutely fantastic and what's wrong with me for not liking it particularly. But, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, you know, as I said, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna just say, Oh no, this is a total piece of crap and, and is horrible. But I just, I just think it's, it's long and it's disjointed and it just didn't quite, you know, tick all the boxes for me. I, 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 I found it difficult and that was kind of what I was going with and, and why I thought it would, you know, be good for discussion, if you like, <laughs> for hell. But, um, I, you know, I don't, I yeah, don't think well, it's I mean, I, 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 I don't agree. I mean, it's a, it's a story that flows and it, you're, you're always with Freddie Quill and you're following him and, you know, there's not many scenes where he's not in it. And, and he puts a lot you know, into it, it. I'll give him that. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's he looks completely different. I mean, he he does look kind of wretched, you know, in his in his in his stance and the way he looks. And, you know, he looks a completely different person. I mean, he when he well, you got to remember when the master came out, he just he had done that sort of mock mockumentary, you know, I'm still mm-hmm. here where people thought he's lost his mind. Yeah. You know, people actually thought that was him for real when it was actually him playing a part. Yeah. You know, and and then take, um, I think, wasn't Her was the next film he did after this? Where he looks completely different. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a wonder, uh, don't get me wrong. Um, You know, as I mentioned, Walk the Line, for example, 
you know, absolutely fabulous. I mean, I do think he's a very good actor. Um, so I'm, yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I just there was. Well, he's come a long way since Space. Camp. Absolutely, yeah. There you go. Um, but th- th- there's just, I, d- I don't know what it is. I can't put my finger on it. But with this film, there's something that I, I know. In some respects, you're supposed to feel slightly uncomfortable. I think that's kind of the point of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The the oh, I, I wish I could. I wish I could be more eloquent and and sort of precise about what it is. But there's just something that that doesn't quite work for me with this film, and 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 it's a shame because, as I said, I do I do totally understand the. Like I said at the beginning, I think it's a great work of art, but it is said. I remember Q and A and just being. I really didn't like that. And, and, you know, that was my initial first response. And I said that. I mean, I'm not I didn't say it to him, obviously. <laughs> but, you, you know, people that I was talking to at that soiree afterwards, you know, a lot of BAFTAites and whatever. And I said to them, look, I'm sorry, but I, I didn't really like this particularly. And, um, you know, every, everybody sort of agreed that it was it, that the performances were good. And I, I wasn't, you know, saying that. But it, it was just something about the film for me just didn't didn't sort of quite sit right and and as i said i've watched it again and you know i probably appreciated it more the second time even though it was just watching it on on uh blu-ray um but i still found it a, a, a slog i still found it hard work well i mean i i totally disagree with you that i i think it's it's a great great film and just it's it just it just flows and you know, I've I've seen it a couple of times now, and uh, every time I sort of I still get caught up with it. Cool. Well, no, I appreciate, I respect that. I mean, I, I think it's good sometimes when we uh, when we don't agree on these things. It makes for the conversation more interesting. Um, but 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 you know, I, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't rag on it. You know, you said was I gonna was I gonna rag on on a film? No, I, yeah. I definitely wouldn't because I definitely see the 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 craftsmanship and the um, you know the the artistic endeavor and all that I appreciate but yeah for me out of his body of work which I think is a strong body of work this is one of my least favorites <laughs> I won't say my least favorite but what what <laughs> one of and and I kind I kind of wanted to uh, I, I I in terms of disagreeing I kind of wanted to disagree with the with your pick but i I, i'm afraid i can't (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) uh well shall we move on to my pick well i think i think we can because i you know i can't really i as i said i wish that i could be more concise about what it is about Mm. the master um i can't unfortunately i wish i could be eloquent and intellectual and and put across a really good case um all i can do is point out his strengths which are the reasons that i should like it but overall no i don't it's all yeah. right it's all and right. that's okay damn it yeah it's one of those films <laughs> it's marmite that no no it's not a marmite film i was gonna say it's one of those films where everybody else says it's a, is a classic it's great and you're going no i think it's terrible it's like me and psycho yes damn it how dare you no okay <laughs> yeah, exactly see <laughs> how dare this you is my psycho like the master <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh. anyway moving on yes. um 
By the way, listeners, go back to the Hitchcock episode for that, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's a doozy. Right. Well, um, so I was trying to think of uh, what film I would pick for Movie Hell. And um, and his latest one came up on Sky and I hadn't seen it. And so I went and I watched it. I thought, oh, OK, this is this is I should like this. This is like Keith and the Master. I should like mm-hmm. this, but I not really getting into it. And of course, that's inherent vice. Yeah. Now, um, for me, it's kind of in the same vein as the big Lebowski, but. Not as good. Yeah, well, I mean, this is what I mean when I sort of earlier was was a sort of alluding to that that sometimes there's there's a a slight Coen Brothers feel, but obviously not as good because, like you said, the Big Lebowski. Let's be honest, that's that's a genius film. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. This I wanted to like, but can I say why? Sure. Because uh, in the Big Lebowski, you're you're dealing well in both of these films. You're dealing with uh, private eyes. Well, actually, Big Lebowski is not a private eye. But he's mistaken for a private eye. But they're dealing with two kind of hippies who, you know, deal with drugs. You know, they're drug takers. And in Inherent Vice, you see a lot of drug taking, but you you never see any of the effects of it. As in, in the Big Lebowski, you know, you have those wonderful dream sequences you know, where he's flying on a carpet or he's at a bowling alley being served by Saddam Hussein, <laughs> you know, where he's dealing with uh, Julianne Moore as a, uh, like a, a, a Viking, uh, you know, with, but her costume's made out of bowling pins, you know, and the whole bit when he's flying down the, the, the alley, looking up the girl's skirt, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing like that. The dude, man, the dude. The dude, exactly. <laughs> we love Jeff. <laughs> we there's none of the sort of rememberable dialogue either, which you have in the Big Lebowski. Yeah. You know, um, inherent vice is you know it's, but it, it kind of deals in the same territory. It's you know it's about this sort of hippie, uh, pi, who, is called Doc. And his ex-girlfriend turns up and sort of tells him about this plot that's going on to, you know, to kidnap a, a real estate. Um, you know, he's like a big guy. Mm-hmm. And so he's, well, that's the thing. I'm not quite sure, you know, he what he was hired to do originally. Yeah. Kind of stop it or because the girlfriend just sort of turns up and kind of teases yeah. him about well, you, it. You really. can tell, you can certainly see why he'd be heartbroken. <laughs> yes yeah and and so he he goes on this journey where you know uh he he kind of you know because it seems to be that there's kind of three different cases going on so his girlfriend's informs him about as i say this real estate guy and his missus is trying to sort of get him into a, a mental institute and, you know, I, I don't know, take over or, or something like that, get him out of the picture. Uh, he's sort of giving away all his money and stuff. And yet, and also he's surrounded by the 
uh, Aryan Brotherhood. Mm -hmm. So they're like a bunch of neo-Nazis. <laughs> so you have that case. And then you have the case of uh, the black guy who was in jail with one of them. And he owed him money and he wanted to, f he wanted to find out where he was because that guy turns up dead. And then you have the whole thing with, um, oh, I can't remember the guy's name. Give me a sec. Uh, the Josh Brolin um, character. Is this? No, no, we'll get to Josh Brolin. Okay. Uh, Owen Wilson. Oh, Owen Wilson. You get yeah, to yeah. Owen Wilson's character. So his wife has contacted Doc to try and see if he, because he, he, she's been told he's dead. They're, they're both big, they were big sort of heroin addicts. And they had a baby. <laughs> and of course, it seems that heroin comes through breast milk. And so it was affecting the baby. So the uh, the wife actually stopped. And so you, you have what I think is the sort of main point of the story of him trying to get Owen Wilson's character out of this predicament. Because not only is he messed up with the Aryan Brotherhood, but he's also a uh, informant for the police and the FBI and he, for him to come out he ha, you know it's a big deal because you know all these all these guys would you know want to kill him or you know he couldn't just he couldn't just walk away so you know you have these different story threads going along and um but you also have a case of i think the what I'm going to refer to as an unreliable narrator because it's not narrated by Doc, it's it's narrated by this woman, which makes it very um, oh god the guy who did Badlands, um, Terence Malick mm -hmm. makes it very Terence Malick that kind of whimsical voiceover by a, a by a woman mm -hmm. or a girl, and in this case it's not as annoying. I actually find that quite annoying in in Terence Malick's films. I'm not a big fan of Terence Malick, to tell the <laughs> truth. Okay. Uh, if you want to talk about somebody who doesn't deal with narrative very well, then, you know, we could talk to the, you know, all day about Terence <laughs> When Mark. we get to M, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe. But I don't think she's a real character. I think it's it's in his head. Yeah. Because there's a moment when she says, she actually speaks to him. Uh -huh. She's like, Dopa's ESP, Dark. And then, of course, he he then goes and looks in the back of the trunk. And the thing is, you never see... You, you don't, Whenever you ever see her, it's with him. And you never see her with anybody else. Even though the girlfriend kind of knows about her. But you, you never see them interact. So it's... I feel she's just... I don't know. It's made up with an imaginary friend or... Because there's, there's things in it. There's no way she would be able to know. And Doc is not exactly a character who can remember stuff. No. <laughs> Most of the time he's out of his head on, on, on drugs. Which is maybe what you have to be to enjoy this film. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, I mean it's, it's interesting that the two, the two films that you've picked are both adaptations of books. I mean, this is from the Thomas yes. Pynchon uh, novel, um, which again, and from what I've heard, Thomas Pynchon books are 
are, are hard reads anyway. Right, well, in that case, he interpreted this one quite closely because this is certainly a hard watch at two and a half hours or whatever it is. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I was thinking kind of, you know, detective, hippie, stoner, mystery movie, you know, what what, what could be what could be bad about this? Um, obviously, I thought they, they, they sort of captured the... The, the the setting you know the 1970s um setting quite well etc but yeah i it feel this this film you know very absurdist in in its nature uh, particularly when you get you know like what's his name martin short uh <laughs> oh god yeah, as a dentist as a dentist coming sort of chew the scenery for for a for a couple of scenes just bonkers but um yeah, it, it did feel like a kind of, you know, it was very sort of unhinged and, 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 and hard to follow. And again, I know people, I know a few BAFTA people. I never went to the screening of this. In fact, I never saw this mm. until um, a couple of days back on, on Blu-ray uh, because, uh, you know, I said I'd missed the, the, the screening. Um and I know some people who are absolutely wax lyrical about this, about it being an absolutely amazing film. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't see it. As I said, I kind of wanted to be able to disagree with you on this one. Um, but I found it, um, in fact, some, something that summed it up. I, I remember when it came out, um, again, we mentioned him earlier, but Mark Commode uh, reviewed this and he reviewed it as, it was one of those films that was probably more fun to make than it was to watch. <laughs> and I thought, uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, there's a sense of that. I mean, did you notice the... Um... Oh, my God, my brain's going. Uh, did you did you see the little uh, sort of nod towards John Landis with the uh, Doctor Doctor joke? Uh, not sure I did. Right. In Spies or Us, there's a whole scene where they oh, go, Doctor, 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 <laughs> yeah. Doctor. And there's a bit when Doc walks into the dentist and he passes and uh, must have been the dentist. And they go, Doctor, Doctor. Right. And yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah I mean, <laughs> so there you go. A little Easter egg in there, I think, which most it just probably flew out of his head. I was going to say, Spies head, but... Like Us is not one of uh, what I would call Landis's classics. But uh, yeah, there you go. It's good fun. I have fond memories of that film. <laughs> Fair enough. Especially Vanessa Angel at the end. <laughs> Fair enough. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I don't know. With this one, um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure what it was trying to be. If it was trying to be anything at all, I, I, I well, you know. it was, you know, it was one of these detective stories where, you know, some good is done. I mean, at the end of the day, he does, you know, rescue Clive Owen's character from this life of servitude. I mean, that he was stuck in, you know, and he brings the family back together he does some good and he gets back with his ex more power to him there yeah no absolutely well yeah but i don't know how how well that relationship's going to last because you know the way she was you know leaving and everything and and stuff like that it, it didn't it didn't i mean that last shot when they're driving and you know she looks a bit perplexed and he's smiling because he's thinking well you know at least i've got her back but you just you just know it's 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 not going to end well. Yeah, no, it is. And also, it's in the tradition of, I would say, another Altman film, Long Goodbye. Yeah, 
yeah there's a yeah. there's a little bit of influence there certainly yeah um and and you know uh you know Wackwin in this i mean obviously he's you know he, pt likes working with with him and he's kind of doing this sort of neil young inspired um you, you know look and, and and performance and and yeah it's you know it's oh it's i different. love the neil young song they used in this i thought that was great. yeah I mean, yeah. there, there, there are things in it to like, but as a whole, I, it's, it, it's, it's a, it is a hard mm. watch, and uh, I've seen it twice now, and uh, it got a little better on the second go, but I still, still had quite a few problems, especially you know knowing now where it was going. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's just too long. I mean, it, it's kind of, you know, it, it, it's, it's just, um, I, I found it hard to watch. I found I was more. I was more watching it for, you know, production design and, and, you know, costume design and those things rather than being particularly engaged in the story or the movie or invested in the characters uh, particularly. Um, you, you know, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not without it's, it's good points for sure. Yeah. But well, let's, let's talk about one of those good points and that's Josh Brolin yeah. as Bigfoot. <laughs> he is great in this and I love the fact that not only is he a detective in the homicide squad but he is also a part-time actor yes because the first time you see him you got him, you see him with his big afro advertising this housing and he's talking like like a hippie going this is groovy and you know <laughs> you can tell it's somebody who does not use that language you know it's like like some people can't swear yeah well, this guy can't do the 60s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they have him in like an episode of Adam 12 or something, don't they? That's <laughs> right, yeah. You see him as an extra in the background. <laughs> yeah, and he talks about how that, that works drying up and all this sort of thing. So, yeah, it's... it's it's um, Yeah, I mean, it's it's got it's got its amusing moments, that's for sure. Um, mm. And, you, you know, like I said, Martin Short uh, clearly had fun, I think, um, yeah. doing yeah. this, but... It's just so absurd, and it's just so, you know, unstructured that it's that it's it, it is sort of hard to follow and hard to watch, and um, it's 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 not one of his. Uh, it's definitely well, yeah. It's it's his last. It's his last film to date, isn't it? And um, uh, yes, he is currently working in IMDb. There's a untitled P.T. Anderson right. film in whatever stage of production it is i don't know but it's there is a one listed there so yeah oh, i mean also recently he did the uh the radiohead radiohead music video yeah yeah i mean i know he does a Radiohead. Lot of his, <laughs> uh, he's, he still does a lot of music videos and, and yeah and stuff. which was great i loved that the, the one where the lead singer was walking through all the different doors yeah. and then walking through people's houses and then through another door and then cutting to another place i thought that was that was great i really loved that yeah no, it's good that he still does this stuff. I mean, um, yeah. I have to say as well, uh, you know, I, I always like to talk. I, I kind of do my uh, um, DVD minefield stuff in advance. But mm -hmm. um, uh, <laughs> the Blu-ray, the wankest collection of extras I've ever seen, right? They had all these, all these special features named different things. And essentially, it's four versions of the trailer for the film just cut slightly differently and i'm like what the fuck is this and nothing about the filmmaking or production or anything whatsoever so i was just very disappointed by that also i was like well, come on you can't you can't blame paul thomas anderson for that you no no just blame the 
Blu-ray distribution. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just like what the fuck. So, um, so yeah, pretty disappointed by that too. Because I was hoping to sort of hear more and learn more about this. Um, but you, you know, all I had to go on in the end was just the movie, which is probably the best way for, to, to go on just the movie, which, uh, which, which, yeah, really didn't quite work. And um, yeah, it was kind of. It was. It just felt long. It felt really long. I must admit, I. Uh, it was kind of weird because we did get a walk the line reunion in this, and you, I didn't even really notice it. Yeah, to the truth, because Reese Witherspoon's in she this. She is. Yeah. But she just. Well, she isn't in it much, and you know, it just. I didn't even cons- You know, I didn't even think of that when I was watching it. It was, you know. I just thinking about it now. It's kind of like, oh god, yeah, those two are both in, but then seeing them on screen, they look completely different from their characters from Walk the Line. Big time, yeah, big time. Um, I mean, I've heard, you know, again, I've I've, I've read up a little bit on, um, you know, P.T. Anderson and and what people say, and they, you know, mm. they a couple of things come across. I mean, they talk about how he is very much an actor's director. You know, yep. um, obviously he does always sort of collaborate with the same people, uh, which, you know, great if you're in that crowd, I guess. Uh, the other thing along with, with Quentin and Christopher Nolan and whatever is he is, he is a, um, you know, massive proponent of, uh, 35 and, you know, still shooting on film. In fact, his films, I notice in the credits say shot and cut on, on film. I notice he actually puts that, that at the end of his credits all the time just to sort of hammer that home that it's shot and yeah. cut on film which is kind of rare um you know as, as we've talked about on many a podcast but yeah well look, look i mean you know paul thomas anderson is one of those people who spoke up for phil you know and good for him because you know the kind of budgets that he commands he can he can afford to do that but if he was starting now though it, he he wouldn't be so lucky, I don't no, think. No, I mean, I mean, the thing is, he was quite, um, you, you know, uh, vocal and vocally arrogant, I guess, but, 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 you, you know, strong in his opinion. Uh, when he did um, uh, Boogie Nights, uh, I can't remember who was running the studio at the time. Obviously, he'd, he'd had one hit with um, Sydney or Hard Eight, and um, he kind of said to them that. Uh, this film was going to be R rated and was going to be three hours long. And they sort of said, well, you can have one of them. So pick one of them. And he turned around and said, yeah. sort of, no, fuck it. It's going to be this long and it's going to be R rated. And he sort of stuck by that and, and, you know, pretty much got what he wanted. I mean, I know there's half an hour of deleted uh, material, but the, yeah. so you know, he, he, he was strong willed and strong charactered and stood by his guns and he got his, um, you know, he, he got his two and a half hour film and uh, he got his R rating, which, uh, you know, even in 1997 at the time, um, the studios and whatever, even back then, like they are now, were pushing for PG-13s so that they could get, you know, a wider audience and a, and a bigger return on that investment. But, uh, you know, he didn't compromise. And, um, you, you know, I can kind of respect that, uh, you, you know, and, and he had the sort of balls to stand up to them and, and, and 
you know, get what he wanted there. So good on him, I guess. <laughs> I think sometimes you have to sort of kind of push for what you want. And when you're dealing with the porn industry, you got to have porn. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. You know, <laughs> and the thing is that the, the, those scenes in the film aren't that gratuitous. I mean, you see a, a little bit of nudity, but it's it's never it's never on screen for long. No, not at all. I mean, it's 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 it just takes place in that world, but it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't linger on it as such. But um, yeah, I mean, you, you know, he's. As I said, this has been a little bit of a learning curve because, um, you know, I would say he's one of those directors that I've always kind of respected and um, you know been very aware of. Uh, I'd be lying if I said he was one of my favourite directors, and that's probably, you know, because I hadn't seen a lot of his films, uh, to be honest. But having gone back and sort of not only revisited those films, but also filled in the gaps with the films that that, that I hadn't seen, um, you, you know, a good body of work there. I mean, OK, I have my issues with his last couple of films, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm taking anything away from him as a as a filmmaker and as a um, a fan of cinema, a fan of literature and a fan of classic cinema. I mean, he talks about Robert Downey Sr. quite a bit when he's interviewed as well and um, Putney Swope and, and, and films like that. So, uh, um, you know, as well as Altman and, um, and many others. So, and, and, yeah. and does, does, he, does he have a unique style? I mean, I, I don't know. He has some style, but... It does. He, he obviously varies his genres quite a bit in his body of work. Um, he, he does use the tracking shots a fair bit, as we've as we've already touched on. Um, well, tracking, um, steady cam. Yeah. You know, it, he 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 does like using long takes. Yeah. I think it's kind of instinctual when it comes to his filmmaking. He he knows when to be flashy and when not to be flashy. Mm-hmm. Because you imagine if he shot, uh, there will be blood like Boogie Nights. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it would have been inappropriate. I mean, it would be, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yet, some filmmakers, they have a style and they apply it to everything. Yeah. Across the board. While he comes from it, what fits this story the best, in my opinion? Yeah, which. which... Let's be honest. That's what that's what good filmmaking should be. Um, you, you know, when when you start to become aware of uh, of of showing off, as if you like, being showy and 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 doing those sort of things, that that's when it all goes wrong. It has to be whatever suits the uh, the theme, the narrative, the, the 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 you know the structure and the and the overall look and feel of a particular project. And and certainly in his case. We've got quite a mixed bag of of types of film and, and genres. You know, we've got everything here from romantic comedy to thriller to to period piece <laughs> drama. You know, so there's a little bit of everything mixed in there with his and you know a good director in his own right. I think well worth checking out, and um, you know, for you film students out there, an exercise would be to watch his filmography from the very first one to the very end. Because you certainly see how his style and way of doing things changes a lot, and uh, I'd an exercise I would recommend with any director who whose body of work is not massive. Yeah. So uh, another one to sort of consider doing that with is Kubrick, because uh, he, you know, his body of work is not 
massive. He's not like Spielberg, <laughs> where no. he, you know you might you would have to take a month off to watch all well, these films in order. Yeah, you, 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 you say that though, even though it's not massive, the films are long. They are long, yes. Because <laughs> I did, I did try and do that with Kubrick before we we did that last time, but I didn't have the gap like I had, you know, for this one to actually. Uh, yeah, to go back and do them sort of chronologically. Although I had seen all of Kubrick's films, so but that yeah. was fine. But, yeah. um, but as I say, I personally think for me it was a great exercise doing that. So uh, yeah, I think Paul Thomas Anderson again is somebody else who's uh, you can see his style evolve from film to film, and uh, oh, maybe even try Tarantino because again his filmography isn't big either. No. Absolutely. Even though his films are long. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, we're going to end it in our customary fashion. So, Keith, where can we find your work? If you go to YouTube and put in British Isles, which is E-Y-L-E-S, as in my last name, there are uh, six short films there that I've made uh, that you can watch. Also, look out for, I have another film currently doing the festival circuit called Taste. Uh, which was a co-production uh, with Richard Nock. And uh, we had a screening this this past weekend and um, hope to be having more screenings at festivals, which I will keep you updated on this podcast for. Plug, plug. Certainly, yeah. Plug, <laughs> plug. And having seen it, I'd say it's well worth watching and, uh, you know, hopefully it will get into a lot of festivals. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, you know, I keep my fingers crossed for you. <laughs> and uh, as always, you can find my work at independentrunnings.com. Unfortunately, I don't have any new films to plug. So... <laughs> well, you're working on them now, aren't you? You are working on them. I am. Oh, I'm always working on them. I always have something uh, cooking. Uh, you can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and all good podcast providers. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. And uh, if you do listen to us on iTunes and Stitcher, please leave us a a rating and a review because it all helps. It does. Well, thank you for uh, joining us for this podcast and uh, welcome to season two. We're back. So uh, (laughs) plenty more directors coming up in the forthcoming weeks. 